from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes alum. This week, Chukat. This week, please take a moment to rate the podcast on iTunes or from wherever you receive the podcast. Rating the podcast doesn't take long, but does make a big difference. Thank you very much. This week, Chukat with Rabbi Meir Schweiger. Rabbi Meir Schweiger is a senior member of the Pardes faculty and also serves as a Pardes Mashkiach Ruchani, the spiritual guide for Pardes. And now, Rabbi Meir Schweiger. Thank you, Larry. Before I begin this podcast, I would like to thank Avram Jacobs for sponsoring it in memory of his beloved wife, Dr. Laura Jacobs. Last year, I had the great fortune to spend four days at a Shavuot retreat in Ramadarom. During that time, it was my pleasure to have met, studied, and schmoozed with Avram. From our conversations, I learned what a remarkable woman Dr. Laura was and how much her absence was felt. I hope that this podcast will be a fitting tribute to her memory. And I am sure that Avram would agree with me that perhaps the greatest tribute to her memory is their daughter, Kayla, who by chance happens to be an alum of our year program. Thank you, Avram. This week's parsha is Parshat Chukat. Today I would like to examine a fascinating story, a cryptic story, a tragic story, the waters of Meimarivah, a story that results in God decreeing that Moses and Aaron will not lead the Jewish people into the land of Israel, in effect saying that Moses and Aaron will die in the desert, falling short of the ultimate goal which they were supposed to bring about, which was, which was the entry into the land of Israel. I have attached a source sheet all of my sources are only in Hebrew. For those of you who are able to follow, great. For those of you who are not, I apologize in advance. And I will translate everything which is relevant to our discussion. And I encourage you afterwards to perhaps find a chavruta and go over these sources in the original. So without any further ado, let's look at the verses in our parsha. Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verses 1 to 13. The opening verse of our section gives us the background to our story. The Jewish people are now in the mid, in the desert of Zin, in a place called Kadesh. This is happening in the first month. According to the traditional understanding, it is the first month of the 40th year that the Jews are in the desert, it's important to note that a whole generation that left Egypt has died in the desert, and we are now looking at the new generation that has grown up in the desert, that is about to enter the land of Israel. And what we're told in verse 1 is, when the Jewish people come to this place, Kadesh, Miriam dies there, she is buried there. According to the rabbinic understanding, there were three gifts which were given to the Jewish people during their travels in the desert. The well of Miriam, the manna, and the clouds of glory. As I mentioned, the well was seen as a gift in the merit of Miriam. The manna in the merit of Moses. The clouds of glory in the merit of Aaron. So that when Miriam dies, the Jews no longer have that well which accompanied them, which then leads to verse 2, where it says there is no water. And then the reaction of the people is to now gather upon Moshe and Aaron. It's important to understand the expression gathering upon has the connotation of a mob scene. It's threatening. It's ominous. It's as if the people are now placing themselves above Moshe and Aaron, perhaps judging them, perhaps dictating to them what they want. And we're then told in verse 3 that the people now argue with Moshe. And essentially they say to them, say to him, 
Would that we have died in the death of our brethren before God. And the language for dying is ligvoa, which is to expire. It's a type of death where you simply close your eyes and you, your soul departs. In many ways, a very, very peaceful death. But instead, what are they now saying? Why have you brought the congregation of God to this desert to die? We in our flocks. Why did you take us out of Egypt to this evil place? It is not a place of planting, of figs, of grapes, of pomegranates. And the bottom line, and there is no water to drink. So that the people are now arguing, condemning Moshe for having brought them to a place which is going to be the place of their death, but of what we might even describe as a very painful death, death by thirst. Interestingly, the people here do not mention the idea of God having taken them out of Egypt. It's as if perhaps God now is somewhere in the background and Moshe is now responsible for what's happened. And then Moshe and Aaron go to the tent of meeting, they pray to God, the glory of God appears, and then God now instructs Moshe, take your staff, gather the people together with Aaron, speak to the rock, it will bring forth its waters, and you will thereby give the congregation and their flocks to drink. And in the next verse, verse 9, Moshe does as God tells him to do, he takes the staff from before God. And now we come to the next three verses, which are the key to our section. Moshe and Aaron gather the people by the rock, and then they say to them the following, Listen to us now, you and I will translate this, you rebels. Do you think that we will draw water from this rock? And then Moshe lifts up his hands, and he strikes the rock twice, and many waters come out of this rock, and the people in their flocks drink. But then we get to the concluding verse. And God says to Moshe and Aaron, Because you did not have faith in me, to sanctify me before the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you will not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. And then we're told, These are the waters of Merivah, of contention, where the Jewish people contended with God, and God was sanctified in them. In them is questionable, doesn't mean in the waters or in the people. But I'll leave that for a moment. Now, before we go into a whole discussion about what exactly happened here, I thought it would be appropriate to show you a parallel story, which occurs in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And once again, to give you the context of when this is happening. This is happening right after the Jewish people leave the land of Egypt, after the splitting of the Red Sea, before the giving of the Torah at Sinai, after an incident in chapter 16 where the people had complained about a lack of food, and then God brought them the manna, a gift which, as we said, accompanies them throughout their stay in the desert. And in this chapter, the people encamp in a place called Rafidim. Once again, there is no water, similar to our story. The people argue with Moshe, similar to our story. Here the people say, give us water, okay? And Moshe's response is, why are you arguing with me? Why are you testing God? Interestingly, Moshe did not say anything in our section. Moshe's response was to go to the tent of meeting and to talk to God. Now, to go back to Shemot, to Exodus, the people are thirsty. And instead of the people, perhaps, taking in what Moshe says and praying to God, the people come back to Moshe and they complain. And they say, why did you take us out of Egypt in order to have us die in the desert from thirst? Which again is very similar to what the people were saying in our story. And then Moshe cries out to God. And as I mentioned, in our story, Moses and Aaron prayed to God, but we have no idea of what they actually said. But in this story, it says, 
Moshe says to God, what will I do? The people will stone me. And God's response to Moshe is, go before the people. Take with you the elders and the staff which you used, right, to strike the Nile. Take that staff. And then what God says, and I will be present by a certain rock in Chorev, and you will hit that rock. Water will come out, the people will drink. And Moses did what God had asked before the eyes of the elders. So that here we have a story where God, no water, people are complaining. Moshe actually says to God, what should I do? The people are going to kill me. And you could, and now again, imagine this in our story where I said to you, there's this mob scene. How much more so does it seem to be perhaps in our story that the people might be on the verge of killing Moshe and Aaron? And what God says to him is take the stick and specifically the stick which he used by the Nile. Now, we all know that the stick which Moshe used by the Nile was used to bring about certainly the first plague, but not only the first plague, quite a few other plagues. It was a stick that we could associate with supernatural actions. And it's a way of saying that same stick which was used to plague Egypt, I want you to now use to save the Jewish people. And what is he supposed to do? hit the rock, and he does. And lo and behold, waters come out, and we leave it at that. Moshe commemorates this place by calling it Masam Riva, okay? The name being very similar to what we have in our story, Meimer Riva. Two stories. One story, which happened in the beginning of the journeys of the Jewish people in the desert. A story involving the generation that left Egypt. A second story, 40 years later, which has similar elements, but not identical, of the new generation that's grown up in the land, in the desert, that's about to enter the land of Israel. In the first story, Moshe does what God told him to do. Water comes out, the people drink, and it seems that, that there's a certain closure which is created, which is, which is created. And the people are now ready to move on. In our parsha, it seems that Moshe failed in what he was supposed to do. And God then censures not only Moshe, but Aaron and says, as a result of what you did, you will not bring the Jewish people into the land of Israel. And the question which disturbs commentaries from the rabbinic period until the present day, is what was the sin of Moshe and Aaron? It is clear that they are now being punished by God. But what was their sin? And in fact, accompanying that, whatever their sin was, it seems to be that the punishment is not commensurate with the crime. And as I mentioned, this is a question which has occupied commentaries for at least the past 2,000, if not 3,000 years. And what I did in my source sheet to begin with is to bring you the Abarbanel, who is actually a favorite commentary of mine, even though I have not mentioned him that much in my podcasts. The Abarbanel lived 1437 to 1508. He was actually the finance minister in Portugal, by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. He thought that he would be able to stop the expulsion of the Jews from Spain because of his connections. He was extremely disillusioned when he did not succeed. And that disillusionment actually expresses itself in his commentary in a number of places in terms of his attitude towards the monarchy. Eventually, he went to Italy, died in Italy, he is a very significant commentary, and I brought him because he actually lists 11 explanations of what was the sin of Moses and Aaron. We will not go through all of them, but I thought it, was, it would be for those of you who are interested in looking at this to actually, and I abbreviated what he wrote. In fact, what he wrote was actually four or five times what I brought in my source sheet. I only gave the 
essentially the punchline of his, what he writes. But I would like to examine a few of them, and in particular, I would eventually like to look in more detail into the explanation which he himself offers. And then, after using him as my springboard, I want to look at a number of other commentaries, okay, to perhaps round out the picture. And I, I think this, this story and the commentaries on the story are fascinating because if I have so many different interpretations, it perhaps raises the question, maybe there's an element of truth in all of them. And, and perhaps this actually reflects what we might call the 70 faces of the Torah. Then maybe it isn't just any one explanation, but maybe it might be a combination thereof. And maybe what this also shows us is that there's much more to what's going on than we realize. So let's begin with the first explanation that the Barbanel has, which is essentially Rashi, Rashi based on the Midrashic comment, who says what would seem to be the most reasonable explanation. And that is, what was the sin of Moses and Aaron? Well, if you look at our section, you see that God said to them, you should speak to the rock. But in fact, what they did was to hit the rock. And we might even say, when we compare our section to the one in Shemot, it's very, very striking that in Shemot, God actually said, hit the rock. And here God was very clear in saying, speak to the rock. And so this is why God becomes so upset that Moses and Aaron did in fact not do what God had asked. Now I just want to say that there are quite a few commentaries, including a Barbanel, who then quote-unquote reject this interpretation based on two reasons. The first reason being, what difference does it make if you talk to the rock, if you hit the rock? Who cares? Okay, and why should that be such a big deal to motivate God punishing Moses and Aaron to die in the desert? And the second problem which they have is, why is Aaron punished? If in fact, if we read it carefully, it seems to be that Moshe is the one who is doing everything over here. He is the one who raises up the staff, who hits the rock. So why is Aaron faulted? Let's look at a second interpretation. A second interpretation, which he brings, is also based in rabbinic comment, that Moses and Aaron did not address the Jews properly. In verse 10, when they speak to them, they say, Listen up, you rebels! That's not how they should be speaking to the congregation of God. And because they did not show them proper respect, so therefore they're punished. And once again, the question is raised, but we find other places in other stories where, where Moshe, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moshe actually says to them, you people were rebels and they use harsh language. So why is this so problematic? Number three. Nachmanides says, um, excuse me, Maimonides. Maimonides says that the sin of Moshe was he was angry at the Jewish people for no reason. And presumably what Maimonides says is the Jewish people had, had a legitimate reason to be upset. They had no water. So why should Moshe be angry with them? Now, it's interesting to note that it never actually says in the text that Moshe was angry, and Maimonides intuits this simply by the language that he uses, by the fact that he says, listen, you rebels, okay? It's as if he's reading into the tone of his voice and seeing that anger by calling them that name, okay? And what Maimonides says is, it is unbecoming for the leader of the Jewish people, for such a righteous person, person as Moshe, to be angry. And I'll just say this is based on a rabbinic understanding that anger is ref, reflects a loss of control. There's a rabbinic comment which says that anger is tantamount to denying God, to worshiping idols. So that for Moshe displaying this anger, and Maimonides actually says this, this was a desecration of God's name. Because people will say, 
oh, this is how righteous people behave. They get angry. This is the way they talk. And why would I ever want to emulate Moshe? Why would, and what does that mean, right? If this is what service of God brings you to, why should I do that? So this would be this idea, you didn't sanctify me. But once again, Barbanel and others have a problem. But first of all, it doesn't say that Moshe was actually angry. Second of all, okay, it was Moshe. Where is Aaron in this? We don't find Aaron actually. And why should Aaron then be punished? We have, you know, other explanations. If I go down the list, number four is Rabbeinu Hananel, who says that the sin was, Moshe said, will we bring forth water as opposed to God bringing forth water? As if the people are now going to ascribe what it's about what's going to happen to Moshe and Aaron as opposed to God. And this is the idea that you didn't sanctify me because you should have said that it would be me who would bring forth the water. Okay, another explanation, number five. They hit the rock twice. They should have just done it once. We don't find that in the similar story in, in Shemot, in Exodus, that they did it twice. So this was the sin, as if they didn't have faith that by hitting it once it would come out. A further explanation, okay? Number six. I guess I'm on a roll now, so let's go through them all. Number six. Number six is that when the water came forth, they didn't now sing a song of praise to God. And later on, in fact, in our parsha, in chapter 21, verse 18, it speaks about how the Jewish people sing a song to this well that brings them forth water. But Moshe and Aaron didn't sing the song. They didn't lead them in song. Number seven. Number seven is based on an understanding that the Jewish people had asked Moshe and Aaron to bring water from a particular rock. And Moshe and Aaron had said to them, from this rock will we bring forth water? As a way of saying, no, this is not the rock. God told us to do it from another rock. And according to this interpretation, what's the big deal? They could have done it from the rock which the Jewish people asked. And had they done so, then that would have really shown that ultimately, right? In other words, God is able to bring forth water from any rock, that this is God. Number eight, which is interesting, which he quotes in the name of the Ibn Ezra, is what the what the Barbanel calls perhaps a synthesis of maybe some of the other interpretations which is that essentially that Moshe became angry with the Jewish people. When Moshe became angry with the Jewish people, he ended up hitting the rock instead of speaking to the rock because he was kind of, he, he, uh, he forgot himself, if you could say that. And then when he hit the rock, it could be that because he was not necessarily doing what God wanted, the water didn't immediately come. So he hit it a second time. And as a result of that, in other words, by combining all these different possibilities, this was the sin of Moshe. But once again, you have the problem, and where does Aaron fit into the equation? Number nine. Number nine was, going back in a way to number one, it's by the a work called Sefer HaIkarim, where he says that they should have spoken to the rock, and had they spoken to the rock, it would be a way of perhaps decreeing that water should now come forth. And this would have been much more indicative of God's role, okay, in making it happen. The idea being that when a prophet decrees something in the name of God, okay, and God then upholds that decree, as we find later on by Elijah the prophet who said, I decree that there will be no rain until I say otherwise, then that becomes a basis for God's name being sanctified. So again, this kind of goes back to other explanations, but perhaps articulates them. Hitting the rock is an action which perhaps the people will ascribe to be Moshe's action, Moshe and Aaron's action. Speaking to that, they would see as being much more an indication of something which God is doing. I just want to point out there are commentaries who actually say the exact opposite. That, in other words, by hitting the rock, and especially that rock, which has to do with the, I mean, sorry, by hitting it with the staff, which was used for the plagues, that would be reflecting 
right, a certain aspect of God, this supernatural aspect of God, and by speaking to it, it would perhaps would have shown a different aspect of a God who's maybe operating more through the natural reality, okay? That is number nine. We'll come back to this perhaps later on. What interests me are actually much more number 10 and number 11. Number 10, which the Abarbanel quotes in the name of some wise man, doesn't tell us who that is, says that in fact Moshe did not sin. Aaron did not sin. And that in fact, who is actually sinning here? The Jewish people. They're sinning by the, by the way they're talking to Moshe. They are reflecting a lack of faith. They are being, in fact, very obnoxious. What the Jewish people should have done is they should have actually come to Moshe and Aaron and say to them, pray to God, or they themselves should have prayed to God. And so that, in effect, Moses and Aaron are being punished, not because of what they did. And in fact, for those of you who have my reference number 10, I highlighted it in the few lines from the end of number 10, that the punishment for Moshe and his death is a result of the sin of the generation that wasn't worthy to enter the land of Israel with the leadership of Moshe. Now, this is in a way completely inverting the story and saying that in reality, it's as if Moshe and Aaron are now the victims of the sin of the people. Because the people have done this sin, the people have displayed a lack of faith in God. Because they did not turn to God when they have no water, Moshe and Aaron are now dying, not because of anything wrong which they did, but on the contrary, because that generation is not worthy to enter the land of Israel with these two very, very special leaders. So that, and, and this explanation is emphasizing that God does not say, you will die in the desert. God says, you will not lead the people into the land of Israel. When it says, because you didn't believe you in the plural, it's speaking to Moshe and Aaron as you as the representative of the collective of the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people did not have faith in God, you, Moses and Aaron, will not lead them into the land. But it's not your fault, it's their fault. And this explanation, very interestingly, if you go to my next sheet on the source sheet, page 3, is actually articulated by the Malbim. The Malbim is somebody who lived in the 1800s in the Ukraine. He's considered to be a major modern commentary, okay? Although he wasn't modern, but in the sense of being in the last 250 years. The Malbim is very big on language, philology, and it's fascinating that the Malbim also takes up this position, and it's it's based on various verses in the Torah, which would seem to be that Moshe says, God became angry at me because of you, as if to say that ultimately his death in the desert is not because of what Moshe did, and for that matter, what Aaron did. And in fact, if you look at what I wrote, I highlighted in the middle. He says, they did not sin at all, and certainly not something for which they should have received a death penalty. Rather, Israel was not worthy of having them lead them into the land of Israel. I'll just mention parenthetically, it's fascinating that the Malbim says that in fact, had Moshe and Aaron led the Jewish people into the land of Israel, that would have been the end of Jewish history. Moshe would have been Mashiach. The Jewish people would have never been exiled from that point from their land. The temple would have been built and never destroyed. And in the very last line, again, which I have highlighted, he says another time, the reason why they're not bringing the Jewish people into the land is not because of their sin, but rather because of the lack of completeness of the Jewish people. This is a fascinating explanation. And I would say that on, on the one hand, there is some textual basis, which we will discuss more when we get to the Barbanel's interpretation. 
But on the other hand, I also want to point out, it's perhaps based on the fact of maybe seeing Moshe and Aaron as being these perfect individuals that couldn't be that they sin, or perhaps, because even if they had done something, in no way is the punishment commensurate with the crime, and therefore, on that basis, the Malbim, and evidently people who lived before him, because the Abarbanel who lived 300 years, 400 years before the Malbim, quotes them, evidently they have a tremendous difficulty in seeing that Moshe actually sinned and on that basis deserved to die in the desert. Before I get to the Abarbanel's interpretation, I would like to mention the next thing on page number three, which is the Rashbam. The Rashbam was the grandson of Rashi, and he essentially gives a kind of takeoff on Rashi's explanation that the sin of Moshe was that he hit the rock instead of talking to the rock. And, and what the Rashbam says is that Moshe, perhaps based on the story in Shmot, thought that although God said, speak to the rock, he meant really hit the rock, so that Moshe erred in his understanding of God. And then what he says is, Moshe struck the rock, but he not only struck it once, he struck it twice. And he says, struck it in a manner which might indicate a certain anger. Okay? Okay? And as if to say, I'm not sure if in the end, right, it's going to really work, my hitting the rock. And if it doesn't work, then maybe I will go back to speaking to the rock. And although God, in the end, brought forth the water, but God punished Moshe. And he says, because... Moshe should have believed in God. Moshe should have understood that if God said, speak to the rock, God meant literally speak to the rock and not hit the rock. And because Moshe erred in his understanding of God, and because Moshe also was not sure exactly what did God want and thought, well, let me try this because, you know, that's what worked in the past. And if it doesn't work, so maybe I'll speak to the rock. So God decreed that Moshe would die in the desert. And remember I said, the question was, so what's the big deal if you talk to the rock, if you hit the rock? So the Rashbam says something very interesting, which is that God is based on a rabbinic understanding. God is exacting with the righteous people. And even when they make a minor error, God comes down with full force in punishing them. And it's interesting that he says at the end of his commentary, right, that, and because I know that Moshe didn't do something maliciously wrong, it was a mistake, okay? So therefore, that's why I have to give this interpretation that Moshe made some kind of mistake, but nevertheless, because of who he is, God is now punishing him very severely. So that's the point which the Rashbam is making, is that perhaps... Here is Moshe. After 40 years, a new generation, he should know better. He shouldn't be making such a mistake. And the minute Moshe made that mistake, that was a fatal error. And he needs to be punished. Why? Because God, in effect, is showing the Jewish people there is no favoritism. And on the contrary, the closer one is to God, the more God holds them accountable for what they do. And therefore, people should realize that God has expectations and when people do not come through, they will be accountable for it. And this is sanctifying God's name. Having said that, I would also like to perhaps mention the Sforno, where the Sforno also is perhaps addressing this idea of, you know, why would it make a difference between speaking to the rock and hitting the rock? And the Sforno seems to think that if Moshe had actually spoken instead of hitting the rock, he might have elicited a different response in the people. And essentially what the Sforno is saying is that what Moshe should have done was to speak to the rock and through that bring the people to an acknowledgement of how they had acted inappropriately, to confess their sin, to express their remorse, and essentially to get the people to do what we would call tshuva, to repent. But by doing what he did, by hitting the rock, 
we don't find that that brought about any kind of transformative experience on the part of the people. And that was Moshe's sin. God wanted him to get the people to acknowledge what they did wrong, okay, and he failed in that. I will come back to that a little bit later. But now let me go to the Abarbanel, to the previous page, number 11. And the Abarbanel presents an explanation which is fascinating, which I actually find compelling, and that is, and I'll just read the opening line, that Moses and Aaron were actually punished for two sins that they were involved in, the golden calf and the spies. And what the Barbanel goes on to say is the following. In the incident of the golden calf, we know that Aaron played a role in making the golden calf. And although the rabbinic position is to try to somehow explain why he was doing that, which I'm inclined to agree with, that it was simply he was trying to stall and it was trying to somehow maintain control over a very problematic situation. But because Aaron, in a certain sense, collaborated with the Jewish people and ultimately was a cause of this total breakdown in what happened with the golden calf. So if you look at what I highlighted in the Barbanel, just as Aaron brought about that those people, meaning that generation that left Egypt, would die in the desert and would not enter the land of Israel, so too must he die in the desert and not enter the land of Israel. And then he goes on to say about Moshe with the incident of the spies. The people had approached Moshe and said, we would like spies to be sent. What was the role of the spies? Essentially a military one, to check out the land. What's the best way to come and conquer it? God had actually given instructions to check it out more thoroughly, but Moshe then added something which neither the people nor God had demanded or asked, And that is, Moshe said, very specific things to look for. Look at the nature of the people living in the land. Are they strong? Are they weak? Are they numerous? Are they few? Do they live in unwalled cities? Do they live in fortresses? And it's those added things which Moshe asked them to look for, which in the end, the spies reported, but not only reported, but reported in a way which ultimately demoralized the Jews. And therefore, again, if you look at what I highlighted, he says, because Moshe was the cause for this demoralization of the Jews, and ultimately for God decreeing that the generation should die in the desert, it is the divine justice that the one who brought about such a situation should also now suffer the same fate. So what I want you to see, according to the Barbanel, is... The Barbanel, in effect, is saying, you know what? And he says this very clearly at the, at the end. The reason why Moshe and Aaron are punished, the reason why they die in the desert, is not because of what happened in the story. There's absolutely nothing in the story that could justify them dying in the desert. This story is simply a pretext. The real reason why they're dying in the desert is because of their failure of leadership, both of them, Aaron with respect to the golden calf, Moshe with respect to the story of the spies. By the way, I might add, which the Barbanel does not say, that it's not just the question of Moshe adding all kinds of things for the spies to look at. But if you actually read the story of the spies, Moshe is very, very passive in how he handles that situation. It's as if Moshe steps back and allows the spies to now take over and create the, how should I put it, momentum. And Moshe, who in the incident of the golden calf, played such a dynamic role, destroyed the calf, okay, ultimately brought the people back to their senses. Moshe should have played a much more active role when the spies came back, should have handled the situation much differently, and that was a failure of his leadership. And so if I take what the Barbanel is saying, the real reason why Moshe and Aaron are dying in the desert is because if they failed in their leadership of the Jewish people, 
and on some level played a role in the two major sins, the golden calf and the spies, which ultimately brought about the decree that the whole generation should die in the desert, then it is just, divinely just, that they should suffer the same consequences of what they brought about. And our story is simply, as I said, a kind of pretext. And the Abarbanel himself says, well, so what is it that they did wrong in our story? Well, they should have spoken to the rock and they hit the rock. And again, okay, because they disobeyed God, so they did something wrong. And God now has a kind of excuse for decreeing whatever it is upon them. But the real reason is what happened in the story of the calf and the story of the spies. As I mentioned, I am actually very inclined to what the Abarbanel said, and I would be inclined to say that, in fact, the real reason why they die in the desert is because the generation that they took out of Egypt, they, sh- they should have brought into the land of Israel, and when they did not succeed in bringing that generation to Israel on some level, okay, they have failed in their mission, But I would now like to add one last thing to the Abarbanel, and that is, which the Abarbanel himself says, despite the fact that these were the reasons why they died in the desert, and the Abarbanel, by the way, bases himself on a verse in the beginning of Deuteronomy, where when Moshe recounts the story of the spies, he says, and at that time God became angry at me and said, you will not enter the land of Israel, which from his perspective shows that the real reason why they shouldn't have entered is because of what happened with the spies. But what the Abarbanel says is, God was willing to give Moshe and Aaron another chance. God said, you know what? You really should die in the desert, but I'll give you one more chance. Let's see if you can properly lead the new generation, which is growing up in the desert. If you can properly lead them, then I'll let you do that. And according to the Biarbanel, the moment they slip up, the moment they hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, this was, you know, their last chance. They messed it up. They can't enter in the land of Israel. And again, I could combine with the Biarbanel, right, what the Rashbam says, okay, that God is giving them a last chance, but God is like being very, very God is scrutinizing what they're doing. And therefore, like, you mess it up in any way, and that's it. And that's why, even though it seems to be, but it's unfair, what is it such a big deal? But but nevertheless, okay, it's this was an opportunity, and they failed. But I would now like to maybe take something which came up in the Sforno, and even more, my last reference, Rabbi Samsel Feilhirsch. He was the leading Orthodox rabbi in Germany in the 1800s, and I've quoted him on numerous occasions. And what he does in this story, which is interesting that I brought, is to try to put himself into the mindset of Moshe. What was Moshe thinking? What was Moshe feeling in this incident? And then he says, what is the meaning? What's the significance of this staff, which God tells Moshe, take that staff. Well, he says, the significance of the staff is, this is the staff which Moshe has been using for the last 40 years, and essentially has established his credibility in the eyes of the Jewish people. He did the ten plagues with the staff. He split the Red Sea with the staff. And this is the point of the staff. That, in other words, the staff is the symbol of his credibility, his authority, which he has worked very hard for the last 40 years to establish. And if you look on page 3, the last two lines, which I have highlighted, Rav Samsel Falher says, But now, Moshe is pained by the thought that there hasn't really been any progress over these last 40 years. That in reality, he hasn't gained the backing, the faith of the people, despite everything that he's done, for all this time. So now, if you, again, what Rabbi Samson Father Hirsch is trying to do is put himself in the mindset of Moshe. Here's Moshe. How much has he invested in the Jewish people? How much has he done again and again 
time after time, numerous miracles that should establish, right, his credibility, establish the fact that he is the emissary of God. And he goes on to say, with the bitterness of that feeling, he forgot his mission. And instead of speaking to the rock gently, he spoke harshly to the people. And in the storminess of his feelings, he hit the rock, not just once, but twice. So what is Rav Samson with Father Hirsch doing? He's trying to help us understand what is happening in Moshe's mind. Moshe is now standing before a new generation. And as I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, a new generation has grown up, but on a certain level, deja vu. It's as if we're back to square one. No water. People are complaining. And maybe in certain ways it's even worse here because it's much more ominous, much more threatening. And Moshe is holding the staff, the staff which for him is the symbol of his authority, the symbol of everything that has helped to create that authority. And he says to himself, I'm a total failure. What have I accomplished? And he becomes bitter, perhaps angry. And then, in that state of bitterness and anger, momentarily blanks and doesn't do what he's supposed to do, but hits the rock twice. I would like to take what he's saying and maybe combine it with the Abarbanel and conclude with this. As I mentioned, it seems, Mike, I am inclined to agree with the Abarbanel that the sin of Moshe and Aaron were really their failures as leaders in the two major sins of the Jewish people. But God was willing to give them a last chance. Okay, you failed with that generation that left Egypt. Now let's see how you fare with the new generation. And what I would like to say is, when God said to them, speak to the rock, as opposed to hitting the rock, there was a message which God was trying to tell Moshe and Aaron. Don't lead this new generation the same way that you led the other generation. The first generation needed to be convinced of your authority. And they needed to be convinced of your authority in a very, what we would call, heavy-handed way. What will convince them is the fact that you take a staff, that you are now able to strike with that staff. And it worked, to a certain extent, with the first generation. Ultimately, it failed, but it, but what it did was the, that generation needed to see Moshe as a powerful leader. They needed to see that he is capable of overturning, right, the laws of nature. And what God did was to reinforce that approach. But as I said, it, ultimately, it didn't work. There were two major sins which led to the, that generation dying in the desert. God is now saying to Moshe, take that staff. And let the people see that you have that staff in your hand. But don't use it. Speak to the rock. Gently, as Rabbi Hirsch says. And by speaking to the rock, it becomes symbolic of how you will speak to them. How you will lead them. Not by the power of force. Not by the assertion of authority. You will lead them by convincing them. By talking to them. By teaching them how to properly speak. And here's where I want to go back to that Sforno. If you speak to the rock and speak to the rock in a way which is respectable, you will also teach the people how they should speak. And perhaps they will then begin to realize you don't shout, you don't threaten, you don't accuse. And as the Sforno said, maybe the people would then come to a recognition that they were wrong and they have to learn to speak differently. They have to learn to speak differently to Moshe, they have to learn to speak differently to God. They have to learn to speak differently to each other. And that would have been a sanctification of God's name. To realize that ultimately, the way that you need to behave, the way that you will ultimately interact with what is around you, is through speech, through respect, through understanding, not through force. And I would just add at the end... God says to Moshe, you didn't believe in me. Well, going with what Rabbi Hirsch says, what was Moshe's lack of faith? Moshe's lack of faith was really a lack of faith in the people. Because he says to himself, look, here I am 40 years later, deja vu. They're doing the same thing that the other generation did. What is Moshe's lack of faith? It's a lack of faith 
in himself. Here I am, I'm a failure. I said to God at the burning bush, who am I to do this? And yes, who am I? What have I accomplished? Nothing. And what I would like to say is, on some, on some level, Moshe's lack of faith in the people, his lack of faith in himself, is ultimately a lack of faith in God. Had Moshe had perfect faith in God, and had Moshe felt what God said to him at the burning bush, I will be with you no matter what, we will get through this, then that faith in God would have given him faith in himself and ultimately faith in the Jewish people. And that faith would have enabled him to succeed in his mission, to actually have the Jewish, become, Jewish people become transformed in every way. So here, in contrast with the Malbim, I would say that, yes, on a certain level, the Jewish people weren't worthy of Moshe and Aaron, but maybe they weren't worthy because maybe on a certain level, Moshe and Aaron didn't actualize their full potential as leaders, as people. And had they actualized themselves to the fullest, that would have then impacted on the people and would have lifted up the people to become who they needed to become. And this, I think, becomes an extremely important message to all of us. Because what it shows is how much we constantly need to be working on ourselves. How much faith is not a one-time phenomenon, but it's an ongoing phenomenon. What a tremendous expectation there is that no matter what happens, that people somehow have to be able to maintain their optimism, maintain their enthusiasm, maintain their determination, and not allow themselves to all of a sudden, in the language of Rabbi Hirsch, become despairing, become bitter. Perhaps that's a superhuman expectation. Yet nevertheless, that's the bar which is being set. And therefore, I think, there's all, for us, the understanding is, there's always something to aspire for. And there's the recognition that, in other words, we have to be able to constantly struggle and constantly engage ourselves and to never come to a point of despair. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Schweiger. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.